0: This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu.
1: Hello, and welcome to Window on the East. With me, Ben Harris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. So I'm joined today by uh, Max and Harish and we're going to talk about Russia's sovereign debt. Um, We've been taking the line that it's got some of the most solid macro fundamentals in the world but at the same time the economy is not performing and this is because the whole thing to me seems to be set up as a defense mechanism against its fight over sanctions with the West rather than macro prudence. However, things have um, been progressing. Um, If you step back earlier this year, Putin said that for the first time ever, Russia can cover its entire external debt dollar for dollar with cash in reserves. Now, the reserves have increased, but at the same time, the debt's actually been paid down. And to me, this looks a bit like a war mentality, um, that they're looking more at security than they are at leveraging Russia's economic power in order to produce growth and prosperity. Max, I was just reading the white paper that you've been writing um, talking about this. And when you're making this point that that the, um, it's, it's not so much been prudent macroeconomic management, but it's more to do with just paying down debt and putting themselves into this strong position. What exactly were you saying? Yes. Uh, well, firstly, thank you so much uh, for having us, Ben.
2: But uh, essentially my position is, is that when Putin came out and made this comment in February that Russia's... Um, uh, reserves covered its external debts for the first time uh, was that this didn't really give the whole picture and he actually used the comment to sort of say well we can dismiss the critics of our economic management because of this figure but I don't actually really believe that's hundred percent true. Uh, the reasons for that are is although Russia's uh, overall reserves have gone up slightly uh, over the last two years uh, three years even, um, they're still quite a bit lower than they were back in 2013 and even before the beginning of the crimean crisis in 2014 so russia's overall reserve position over six years has has actually fallen however the reason that its reserves now cover its external debts are because, is because uh, russia's external debts have fallen even
1: faster than its sovereign assets have and that puts it in a strong position but if i so i was trying to look up the numbers before we started talking but um you know one people have talked about there were two years in russia 's history the last twenty five years where it actually had a net inflow, and those were in two thousand and six and two thousand and seven at the height of the economic boom and then mm. we took in around one hundred and thirty one hundred and thirty one billion dollars but then of course, two thousand and eight happened, and the same money one hundred and thirty three billion dollars went out again and since then there 's been this you know perennial capital flight so it 's been um, of around between 20 60 billion dollars a year however if you top that all up this so-called capital flight is actually equal to the amount of deleveraging that's been going on in terms of the fall of the external debt mm. so this isn't actually necessarily driven by the kremlin it's been a, a country-wide or an econo- economy-wide phenomenon yes. where everybody has been paying off their debt isn't that right well,
2: uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's all it, it, it's it's that um, not not that it's necessarily simple, but the, the picture is even uh, slightly more complex. Firstly, uh, there, Russia's access to international capital markets is where I think the real story is. So to to go off your um, reference to the global financial crisis and how right before Russia saw massive capital outflows, Russia actually returned to euro bond markets for the first time since 1998 in 2000 at the height of the global financial crisis and was quite successful in selling debt over the following three years as international markets really looked to, to buy into Russian uh, bonds because they, they could get yield in that way. The real story that's changed is that Russia no longer has that same kind of access to international capital markets. It's returned quite strongly over the last two years, but if you look from uh, from 2014 after the Crimean crisis crisis. until 2016, the percentage of Russian euro bonds held by non-residents fell from the beginning of 2013 at at 71% to January 2016 at 34%. So it halved. Uh, And in part, this has to do with um, debt financing sanctions on some companies like uh, Rosneft uh, is perhaps the strongest example. But so Russia's overall access to international credit markets, particularly Western credit markets, uh, has really been decreased.
1: But it's never really relied on Western credit markets to finance the economy because you've got this this rent that, that Russia receives. Uh, I mean, I, I've always said that mm. the oil price doesn't actually matter. It's the existence of the oil that is the key because it provides this rent that Russia earns. And you know, when the oil price is low, it's less, and when it's high, it's, it's more. But it's enough money to subsidize the economy so that they can afford to run it badly. It doesn't matter because the cash always comes in. And that uh, the sovereign eurobond issues were never about financing the budget. They were more about a benchmarking exercise to allow the corporates yes. who, who did use to mm-hmm. use the international market, particularly the banks, before um, the 2008 crisis, so that they could p- correctly pr- price their bonds. Isn't that that's changed now, though? I mean, basically everybody, the corporate world, have withdrawn from the eurobond market almost completely, haven't they? And that's what you're talking about, no?
2: On the euro bonds, uh, specifically the euro bonds that I was talking about there are are euro bonds uh, issued by the Russian sovereign government. Um, It is certainly true that Russian corporations for quite a long time were very much dependent on Western financial markets, not not just banks. But in part, this had to do with the legacy of the Soviet collapse and and, and the 98 default. Um, But, yes, another change that certainly has happened is that Russian corporates um, have become less dependent on those markets. Euro bonds play an interesting role sometimes in the refinancing. Perhaps the best example of that was the late 2014 um, effective crash of the ruble caused by Rosneft, which took out all of its financing locally and then was effectively backed up by the central bank, taking out international financing. But I'll let Harish speak a little bit more about the sort of international markets and the role that they play.
0: So one thing which I think is probably worth mentioning is I think dependent might be a bit of a strong word to use here. There were always going to be other sources of financing. As you note, um, one of the major things for Russia has been strong commodity prices. And when they were very strong in 2005, 6, 7, and again in the run-up to 2014, there were alternative ways in which Russian corporations could finance themselves by turning to domestic markets, which they have done more and more of in, the, in recent years. So. I think it's important to realize that Russia hasn't deleveraged to the degree that just looking at those external debt figures would suggest. And one of the major reasons for this is Russian corporations are still very much looking to borrow. They just don't have the same access to potentially cheaper sources of credit and foreign U.S. dollar-denominated credit than they did before. So I think the dynamics are quite interesting there in terms of, in some ways, a forced refocus on where they are borrowing from and who they are borrowing from.
1: Well, this is a good point in so much as the 2012 uh, financial market reforms when uh, Russia got hooked into Clearstream and Euroclear uh, Mm. really transformed the market because suddenly the domestic market and the OFZ's treasury bonds, ruble denominated, have become the main borrowing tool. Um, But again, also the corporate bonds. I mean, everything on the Russian market, including the equities, was hooked up to Clearstream. Uh, And suddenly that allowed international investors to, you know, from the comfort of their own trading chair in London, to to deal in in Russian ruble-denominated bonds. And that's ended up becoming a barometer, if you ask me, of the sentiment, because it went from nothing in 2012. And now foreigners went up to 35% of the total outstanding uh, debt was, was foreign-owned. But here, here's the interesting thing, that that's based on these, these very solid uh, macro fundamentals that Russia has and the high yields that these bonds pay. Um, Around 8%, it went up to 9% last year. Mm-hmm. And there was a big sell-off, uh, particularly following the, the April round of sanctions that hit Deripaska. Uh, and it fell. But now, at the start of this year, there's suddenly the foreigners are piling back in again uh, and it's back up to 30%. And there's even been a suggestion that the Ministry of Finance, or a.k.a. Kremlin, are encouraging these foreign investors because the more of them there are, the more widely these bonds are held, the more difficult they are, or even impossible they are, to sanction. So. To one sense, the, you know, you, you've got a, a liquid bond market, which is good for corporates, and it allows them to borrow in domestic currency. So, the, as you say, the external debt is not uh, as relevant as it was because the borrowing is still there. It's just ruble denominated now. But on the other hand, you have this sort of politicization of the debt market going on. Mm. Or, or am I wrong?
2: no you're, you're, you're exactly correct um, you know the, the one thing that I would mention in part we have to control for the ruble and devaluation of the ruble over the last five six years as well uh, but overall the percentage of Russia's external debt that it borrows in foreign currency uh, is pretty much the same as it was five years ago that total external debt pile both ruble and foreign currency denominated uh, has just fallen quite significantly to get to your point on the uh, on the external investors holding um, OFCs uh, and and perhaps not wanting, uh, perhaps that being a hedge against sanctions. um, I, didn't read those comments 100% um, the same way. In part because it seemed to me that he was talking about the euro bond holdings, which I think are more subject uh, to, to sovereign risks. Obviously, the Russian central bank uh, can can just print money if it wants to. But also, you know, look at the recent situation in Venezuela, when most of Venezuela's internationally traded debts uh, are actually held by U.S. investors. Certainly, a far larger share than Russia's. And the Trump administration has actually gone out and directly sanctioned those the trading in that market
0: so I think this is a important point which is given the reality of the dominant dollar denominated financial system the US has a lot of power when it comes to sanctions and can place them on countries if it chooses to do so and effectively cut them off from international finance. that risk was very clear when it came to Venezuela and Iran I think to some degree people believe that is far less likely when it comes to Russia. And I think that's very fair. It would be an incredible escalation for the United States to start sanctioning or preventing any kind of dollar-denominated foreign debt uh, being issued by the Russians. But I don't think that risk is non-existent. I don't think the Russians think that risk is non-existent. If not under this presidency, potentially under under another, in the weaponization of the U.S. dollar and of foreign currencies, which is happening more and more over the last few years.
2: Yes, and even if Russia really does move away, uh, you know, even further from sort of dependence on the foreign currency and particularly dollar financing, uh, the, the vast majority of its foreign trade is still financed through dollars. So yes, you know, I totally agree with your point. Um, you know, what matters is sort of that the oil is there but if you can't sell that oil to anyone on international markets which is where the dollar you know is is still so dominant um then uh it, it doesn't you know help you enough
1: didn't didn't you say i mean in bear markets brief recently that you know the whole campaign to de-dollarize i mean it's been it started but at the end of the day it's actually been a bit of a flop uh I, I, it's just not possible to do as, or at least it's going to take decades to do uh, even though china and Russia are trying to move to their national currencies. Uh, The share of their, it's still a very small share of their overall debt, and most of it is is still dollar denominated, isn't it? Uh,
0: Absolutely, in that it is very difficult to move away from the dollar, largely because of the dollar is used uh, for at least fifty percent of global trade for invoicing, and for Russia, it's a higher percentage of that given the importance of oil, and to some degree gas, though there are more gas contracts now being written in euros, It is not implausible over the long term that will change, but as you note, there doesn't seem to be something where you can de-dollarize over the space of a year or two years. The one place so, where I think... Go on. Well, the one place where I think it's quite interesting to see what Russia is trying to do is if you look, for instance, at the composition of foreign reserves, which is the easiest thing to change from a macroeconomic perspective. But that is where you're seeing the Russians move away from the U.S. dollar. But nonetheless, this doesn't make a huge difference for the fundamentals of the macroeconomy still being overly very reliant on foreign currencies and particularly the dollar.
1: Well, that, that was what my question was going to be. Uh, to, to Just exactly how vulnerable does Russia remain? Because you mentioned the, the reserves, and obviously uh, Russia, the central bank, sold off the bulk of its US bills um, and has reduced its exposure at the same time, massively increased its holdings in one, which now make up 15% or whatever it is. I think it's the largest share of any large mm-hmm. country in the world. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they're building up this stockpile of gold as well, which has been climbing and now is about 20% of the total reserves. Uh, and they, they seem to be you know, trying to, to uh, cut themselves off or at least reduce the, the, the exposure that they have to an attack on the dollar-based uh, uh, assets. But to, to what extent is it managed to succeed in that? I mean, is it, to what extent is it still vulnerable?
2: Well, I, I certainly think uh, Russia is, is still vulnerable to sovereign debt sanctions in terms of the ultimate impact that they would have on the ability to finance uh, Russian trade, which has already been one of the areas most heavily curtailed. Uh, if you look at you know a number of Western European banks that went from having uh, Russia and companies in particular, Gazprom and the uh being their you know sort of largest. Um, buyers of financing up until the, the Crimean sanctions, their largest borrowers, uh, now that has really is particularly entirely, in, in Rasnev's case, uh, been cut off. If, if those debt financing sanctions were tightened, uh, what are known as sectoral sanctions, Directives 1 and Directives 2, uh, or uh, if the, the really strict versions of the sovereign debt bans, as included in the Daska legislation in the United States, were enacted, I, I really do think that that would still have a huge impact on, on credit markets and international trade. And yes, while the central bank is taking this action, um, so far Russia hasn't been able to fully align with China on supporting Beijing's efforts to recreate their own, um, you know, sort of uh, credit markets. For example, it was actually uh, Rusal, I believe, that was going to be the first Russian company to issue uh, a Chinese law Ah, uh, yuan-denominated bond what's sometimes referred to as a panda bond panda. Um, rather than a euro bond. Uh, two years ago, but but that collapsed, uh, and you would have to recreate a whole market like that for the sovereign as well to establish the same you know yield curves. You'd need to have the relationships between financiers comfortable in doing these deals. It would be a multiple-year process to just get back to sort of where we are now. Not to mention
1: uh, Russian companies, you know, having to find new markets all over again. So they're kind of stuck in the system that we've got, and even if they're trying to create a parallel one. But, I mean, that, that leads on, actually, to change tax tack slightly. Um, Russia has these amazing macro-fundamentals. I mean, everybody else has got debt-to-GDP 50% up to 100%, and north of that, in some cases, Italy. I'm looking at you. However... <laughs> um, the problem is is that, despite these rock solid uh, fundamentals, you know we famously have this really crappy economic growth, and the Kremlin 's running around at the moment with its May degrees and its national programs and its transformation uh, and it ain 't really happening um, and maybe it comes back again to this war mentality because you know they have all the these reserves they could cut rates, they could borrow, they could loosen everything up massively. Uh, and yet they're trying to get the growth, but at the same time, make themselves impervious. I mean, isn't this the problem? I and mean, isn't this really the actual real effect of sanctions, that this, this war mentality they have um, is, is hamstrung the economy, which won't grow um, until the tensions uh, ease and everyone becomes a bit more confident?
0: So I think that's part of the problem. But just to step back for one moment when it comes to the potential use of its fiscal reserves, uh, either those in the National Wealth Fund or if instead using some of its large amount of FX reserves themselves, it is arguable that there are better ways in which they could utilize it potentially, whether that means that you don't need as punitive tax cuts, when that means you change the nature of pension reform that that wouldn't necessarily be a good macroeconomic strategy, even abstracting from the political tensions which exist. I think it's quite useful to have fairly solid fiscal rules in terms of what Russia can and cannot do with our money, potentially would be able to loosen them if it wasn't so worried about shocks. But I think when it comes to the geopolitical problems which exist, the impact is much larger than just on those fiscal reserves or the use up. them. It has a lot more to do with general confidence when it comes to investing, both as a foreign investor, but also as a domestic investor within the Russian economy. So while you're seeing strong macro fundamentals, the kinds of things that in many Western countries would propel investment growth and potentially consumer growth, that isn't going to happen in Russia in part because there is a lot of uncertainty about whether you can even be able to export out of Russia and invoice in U.S. dollars as a tail potential risk, but just as one of many examples of how the situation now does impact investment and to some degree impacts consumption, where I think the major effects are being held. Yes, um, I,
2: you know, just to sort of follow up on that, uh, yeah, you know, I, I totally agree. There are real concerns over the global debt picture, uh, Italy in particular. But real wealth these days is not necessarily ownership of a gold mine. You know, what does a Swiss or a Dutch gold mine look like, for example? I don't think many people could tell you. Um, but the ability to, to, you know, borrow on international markets and access them anyway, despite those underlying uh, capital goods, that's what makes the U.S. Uh, you know, regardless of, of sort of its. its current account imbalances, uh, you know, that's what really fuels the strength of the U.S. economy. In, in my opinion, it adds quite a significant amount of geopolitical uh, strength uh, there as well. So that—that that is what I view as sort of the source of true true wealth in, in our modern economies. And as Russia remains in this war footing uh, and under p- sanctions and potential sanctions threat, it's really hard to uh, access those things. Just on one sort of point to, you know, maybe bring us back uh, a little bit was uh, you had mentioned sort of the, the wisdom of these sanctions. And and, and the consideration of sovereign debt bans in the United States and in the United Kingdom, uh, and how much impact they really could have on Russia. Uh, I n- don't necessarily think that doing, uh, imposing such sanctions would be a wise step. Uh, and there's a little bit of a fun anecdote in which is that this has happened before in the late 19th century when the German chancellor Otto von Bismarck, um, out of Berlin, um, issued a, a ban on German companies, uh, essentially using Russian debts to, for refinancing. Uh, Germany had been the largest source of financing for the Russian Tsar and, and key Russian businesses in the development of its rail networks in the years before. Um, and that almost entirely killed it off uh, George Keenan uh, wrote quite a bit about the impact that this had on the balance of power within Europe uh, and even though it only lasted three years it shifted Russia's uh, in, in financing base to Paris, and then ultimately into a political alliance, and then the countries that obviously find themselves uh, on opposite sides in uh, World War One. So there certainly are very strong risks of blowback effects, uh, both of the geopolitical in that sense, and as the U.S. Treasury Department itself uh, has warned uh, on asset managers and, and sort of the global economy, uh, um, uh, if, if the U.S. were to impose those kind of sovereign debt sanctions.
1: The Bismarck bond effect. Yeah, I didn't know that one. Yes, sir. Look, nearly out of time, but I I just very briefly to to wrap up, I I wanted to ask you a question. I was looking at all of this, and um, another aspect of this is I I see this what I've been calling a a crisis of confidence. Because, I mean, if you look Mm -hmm. at the fixed investments, then all of it is largely these massive state-owned, uh, state-driven projects like Power of Siberia, TurkStream, Nord Stream, et um, And actually the man, the, the entrepreneur class, are not investing, and I see this as all part and parcel of this war mentality of the sanctions, of the, the problems of doing business here, the lack of reforms. But you know, the, the businessmen, entrepreneurs I know, they're like, I've got my factory, you know, I'm making several million dollars a year, I'm rich, um, I could leverage up and build a much bigger company. But then if I do that, then I'm exposed through the debt to all of these predators, particularly the state companies are getting more predatorial. And then on top of that, you've got all the geopolitical problems as well. So, to what extent do you think there is a crisis of confidence here that that's actually what's holding back the investment and the growth?
2: I, I certainly would agree with that kind of crisis of confidence. And I think it, part of it uh, is the lack of, of both... Uh, Non-state domestic uh, in- investors willing to to buy up companies and, and sort of build larger conglomerates, but also uh, foreign investors. I think one interesting example there is uh, RusTranscom (RTC), the the uh, Russian primarily grain and shipping company uh, that VTB just uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, announced it was taking a majority stake in. It had planned a uh, London IPO in April. Um, but demand wasn't there. They they couldn't get the pricing they wanted. Um, they ultimately called it off. Uh, so they sold out to a state company. We've seen other you know large private enterprises. Magnet this is another uh, interesting example. Um, sell out to the Russian state. I, mean, I know you guys at Intel News covered that closely. Uh, and you know for. If there's nobody really to sell to, ultimately, at the end, um, instead of the state, who you can't necessarily get the best price out of anyway, then uh, you are not going to have the confidence to take those same kind of risks.
1: Yeah, Harish, what do you think?
0: Right, and I think this relationship is to some degree recursive in that there is a lack of investment, there is a lack of demand, there's a lack of potential people to sell to uh, immediately, and that just reproduces itself for all but the largest companies. I would add on to that, I think, this not just on the sanctions level, but just in general, the reality of growing global trade tensions, all makes it much harder even to sell abroad. So you're somewhat limited on your domestic market with lots of uncertainty related to that, but you're also limited on your ability to export if that was an option. So I think the Russian economy then is in a very difficult position to get anything but the politically controlled state-run companies to do serious investment.
1: Still, summer's just started in Moscow, and it's extremely pleasant at this time of year. So I think everybody's going to be uh, kicking back, and then coming back to these problems in the autumn when it gets you know (laughs) again and goes inside. Guys, thank you very much. Extremely interesting conversation. Um, Thanks for taking the time.
2: Pleasure. Very nice talking to you. Pleasure.
1: Great.